Father in heaven, as we turn to your word now this morning, we pray that you would bless us. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law. Lord, we go astray like lost sheep, but we pray that you would seek us, seek your servants, for we have not forgotten your law. By this morning, you would reach and touch every heart in this sanctuary, those who know you and those who know you not, those who are open to your word and those who are closed shut against your word, and speak with the voice that wakes the dead. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians and chapter 1, and we will launch into our first official sermon in this new series. Last week was an overview of the book, of course, and this week we're going to begin our verse-by-verse exposition of this book of Scripture. Philippians chapter 1, we'll read the first two verses. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, it's been said that familiarity breeds contempt. And in the Bible, um, that's probably never more true than the genealogies of the Old Testament, which often confuse us, and then especially the opening words of the apostolic letters. Because they all seem to begin roughly the same way. They all seem to contain roughly the same words. And it can seem a little bit like, well, we can rush past that bit because we kind of know all that grace and peace stuff and, you know, so forth and so on. And so we, we launch into the body of the letter. But that would be a mistake to do that. Paul writes with intention. His writing here is certainly conventional. This is the way letters opened in the ancient Near East, in the Roman Empire, and so forth and so on. They would address the um, addressee of the letter, and then there would be a salutation of the day, and so forth and so on. And so Paul's structure is conventional. We begin our letters with a date at the top, and then dear so-and-so, and then comma, new line, and Um, we launch into the letter, and the Romans and the Greeks had their way of doing that too, and Paul follows that convention, so his writing is conventional. But you also got to realize that Paul's writing is deeply theological. As we look over his shoulders, he dips his pen, or has his amanuensis dip his pen, pen in the ink, and he starts to dictate this letter from his imprisonment in Rome. Remember, the Philippian letter is one of the four letters that Paul wrote during his house arrest in Rome. You'll find at the end of the book of Acts. And so, he's about six years away from his death, but he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are those four prison epistles. And as Paul dips his ink in his pen and writes to these people, we actually learn an awful lot about what Paul thinks about the church. Or you might say, from our perspective, what Paul thinks a Christian really is. Do you, do you know what a Christian is this morning? How would you describe a Christian? And Paul's writing here tells you how he would answer that question. First of all, and most basically, a man, a Christian is a man or a woman who's addressed by God through Scripture. 
Secondly, we'll see a Christian is a man or a woman who is defined by their relationship to Jesus Christ. They're in Christo. They're in Christ. Thirdly, we'll see a Christian is different. He's distinct from the world. He's set apart. He's a saint, a holy one. And lastly, we'll see that a Christian is entirely dependent upon the gospel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's jump in then and start off by saying that a Christian is someone who is addressed by God through Holy Scripture. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints. He's writing to them, and Paul is doing that self-consciously as a man who is an apostle called by God to give the Scriptures to the church. How do we know that? Well, Paul tells you. If you turn forward um, in your Bibles, a couple of books, you'll find um, Colossians and then 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 13, I remember Paul, when he came in his second missionary journey from Troas to Neapolis, he went down to Philippi in the Philippian jailer. I remember last week, Acts 16. Then he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. He's driven from there by the Jews, and he goes to Berea, where the Jews were more noble, and heard him, gave him a hearing. Um, but he, this is his letter to the Thessalonians. He's only there a week or so. And yet, he says in chapter 2, verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That Paul spoke, and as he spoke, people were gripped that he was giving them the word of God, not the word of men but the Word of God. And it was a Word that was active. It performed a work in their hearts, those who believed. He says in the first chapter, you remember, um, how we know, brothers, beloved by God, that He has chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you not only in Word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That when Paul spoke, he was conscious that God was speaking in his official character as an apostle. And his words had power in the church, not out in the world. They thought he was crazy. But in the church, one of the ways people knew, Paul knew these people were part of the elect, the chosen of God. Beloved, we are confident that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you in power. The Word of God did something to the heart of these people and gripped them in their innermost being. And so, one of the signs that you are one of God's chosen ones is that when the Scripture is read, you don't just know in your head, but you experience in your heart the Word of God coming as not the words of men, but the words of God, your Creator. And it wasn't just Paul who thought that. Um, Paul, of course, was one of, was one of the last apostles or the last apostle born out of time, sorry. But in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us he believes that Paul wrote Scripture as well. If you turn there, fast forward to near the end of the Old Test New Testament, in 2 Peter 3, and Peter's been speaking about God's patience in not sending His Son to judge the world. And in verse 15, Peter says, chapter 3, 2 Peter, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures, or some of your translations might say, the rest of the Scriptures. In other words, they twist the other Scriptures, Paul's write, and they twist Paul's writings, and Paul's writings are part of Scripture. That's what Peter's saying, clearly. The rest of the Scriptures are other Scriptures, because Paul's writing is part of Scripture, all of Paul's letters. So, Paul believed he wrote Scripture, and so did Peter. That's important. You might say, you don't really believe that the Bible, the New, you know, the New Testament is the Word of God. Maybe you've heard the teaching of people like Bart Ehrman, who teaches at Chapel Hill, and he, he used to be a Christian, and he's really fallen away and isn't a Christian now in any meaningful sense whatsoever. But he loves to poke, poke holes in the faith of young college students. And we haven't got time to go into all this this morning, but it's important to realize there are very, very rational reasons to believe that the Scriptures are God's Word. And, um, you know, a, a brief outline of an argument I would make would be, first of all, uh, covenantally. The Bible is a book of two halves. The promises God made in the Old Testament, He would send a Savior to rescue us. And then that covenant, that promise God kept in the New Testament, the two books, the Old Testament, the promises God made, the New Testament, the covenant that God um, kept. So, covenantally, there is um, the, the Bible is a book of two movements, you might say. And then, historically, we meet in the pages of Scripture this great Colossus Christ. There's nobody else like Him in all of human literature, like the person of Christ, so divine and yet so human, so great and exalted and yet so meek, so wise to speak words, and His words come with the weightiness of one not just speaking for God, but one speaking as God. And you find you meet Jesus, and you find yourself feeling less would not satisfy, and more could only be desired. There's nobody like him. And he's there, and he stands not just as this great teacher in the book of the Gospels, but as the great resurrected Lord, exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's the resurrected Christ. And, you know, the liberals would want you to believe that the church, these fishermen, invented Christ. Well, I ask you, is it more rational to believe that, the church, that, that Christ is the invention of the church, that we created Him? Or is it more rational to think that, the, that Christ created the church and Christianity? And it's, it, 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 legends take centuries to develop, scholars tell us, even unbelieving scholars. Go back as far as you can go, right back to the earliest moment of Christianity, A.D. 33, 34, 35, and you have men whose lives were turned upside down by the risen Christ. You have Paul, the, the apostle who attacked the church, is converted. 
And so you've got the writings of these men, and I love that there's a great YouTube video by Vody Bauckham called Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. It's a great lecture. I commend it to you. But in that, he essentially says, why do I choose to believe the Bible? I choose to believe the Bible because it is an historically credible collection of eyewitness documents written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses whose writings record the fulfillment of specific ancient divine prophecy, and they claim their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That's something like that is his basic opening statement, and he unpacks it. It's glorious as he unpacks this and goes through. So, covenantally, historically, you have this, the risen Christ and this movement that came up preaching the risen Christ. And then you have the apostolic fathers. The apostles all died out by, say, AD 90 or so. The apostolic fathers are men who were alive during the apostles' lifetime, who knew the apostles. They ministered from about AD 90 through to about AD 140. Men like Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, and so forth. We have scads of their writing. Men like Irenaeus, who was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by the apostle John. Sorry, I keep on forgetting to turn my phone off. Um, So, you've got the writings of men who knew the apostles and the writings of men who knew men who knew the apostles. And these men quote Paul and Peter and John and James and the Gospels at such length in their writings that it's been said with some accuracy that if we lost all of the Greek manuscripts just from these men's writings, their sermons, and their prayers, we could reconstruct almost the entire text of the New Testament. And then you'd have people saying, well, what about the text? I mean, textually, can you really believe that, that, I mean, all the copies and so forth and so on, and Bart Ehrman loved to tell people, well, you know, there's 200,000 errors in the, the Greek text of the New Testament. And that's a lot. That's almost as many errors as there are words. And so, like, what can you really believe? You know, you never played Chinese whispers, they'll say. And you've got to realize, though, how those 200, how that number 200,000 is, is they, they come up with that. So, you have, these, you have the original autographs that Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark and John wrote, right? And they've been lost. We haven't got those. We've got thousands of copies. We've got 5,000 plus full copies of the New Testament. And we've got thousands of fragments, over 20,000 fragments of books and pages, some as small as a postage stamp and some, you know, containing whole books of the New Testament. And the earliest one we have dates back to within 20 years of John dying, in like 80, 112 or so. And so, um, these, when you look at these fragments, though, there are differences, but a, a lot of those differences are obvious, right? So, you can imagine the scribe writing. And back in those days, there was variations of spelling, like Neil. You can spell Neil the wrong way, N-E-A-L, or you can spell Neil the right way, N-E-I-L, right? And back in those days, people hadn't figured that out yet. And so, there were different ways of spelling place names. And so, when scribes were copying the, you know, um, the geographic locations of these names and the way you spell people's names, they would adjust them so their, their, their readers could understand what they were, right? And a lot of those 200,000 errors fall into that category, just spelling differences. And also, by the way, if scribe A copied any A-L as any I-L, right, 
And then that copy was preserved through a thousand of his subsequent copies. The scholars count that not as one error, but as a thousand errors, even though it's the same error. So the actual number is much less than 200,000 because they count the same difference as an additional error as it kind of travels down the family manuscript line. And then you have as well, don't forget, these, these, these copies, right, or um, to save, because parchment was expensive and hard to make, they didn't leave spaces between the words, so the words just run on into one another in many of the manuscripts. And um, so you could be easily being a scribe and you're writing, you know, Romans 6, and you kind of stop and take a cup of coffee back again and leave a word out. But it's obvious because nobody else left that word out. You did, and so it's pretty obvious, okay, this guy left that word out, and the guy's copying left that word out. But you can go back because you've got so many manuscripts and see, oh, obviously they left that word out because the earlier manuscripts have it. And then sometimes it wasn't a word that was left out. It was a letter. So like in English, your and our are spelled exactly the same way except there's one letter difference, the letter Y. Well, it's exactly the same in Greek. And so if a scribe were to say to the church, Um, He is the redemption of our sins, but not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. But But one scribe put, he is the redemption of your sins, and not for your sins only, but also for the whole world. It doesn't make a bit of difference whether he's right your or our. There's a mistake, yes, certainly, but it doesn't change in any way the theology of the text. And if you get Bart Ehrman and put him into the corner, his mentor was a guy called Brutz Metzger, who was a genius Old Testament scholar and New Testament scholar, sorry, from um, England. And Bruce Metzger made the statement that we can be 98.7 or 98.4, I forget, it's in the 98 point something percent certain that what we have in our Bibles is precisely what the Apostle Paul and John and Matthew and Mark wrote. And Ehrman, not to his students, but privately would admit that's true. We can't, I can't deny that. And so we can have massive confidence in what the Bible says now, what the Bible said in the past. It is by God's singular care and providence has been preserved. But the great evidence that we know the Bible is the Word of God is that it's written to us. And the Holy Spirit comes and witnesses in our hearts that these words are God's words. And the Bible is not written to the world. It should be no surprise that atheists don't believe it. It's not written to them. It's written to us. It's like a family photo album, right? And you sometimes open up your iPhotos and you show people all your photographs, and there's thousands of them, of course, and people quickly are, because it's not their family. It's our family, and it means a lot to us. And um, the thought of hundred years from now, some spotty teenager going, who is this guy? Delete. And deleting all my iPhotos is pretty heartbreaking, but it'll happen. Um, I'm trying to forgive him even now at the thought of it. But nonetheless, um, if you turn in your hymn book to 847, just after the Nicene Creed, you'll see the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it echoes this point. I need to move on. But um, par- chapter 1 of the Confession of Faith paragraph one. Notice the confession of faith begins with Scripture. It doesn't begin with God, because you have no access to God behind the back of Scripture. It's important. But notice, 
Paragraph 1, let's read this together. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, right, unexcusable. In other words, every human being knows God exists. Creation tells him, and your conscience tells you the light of nature. Not believing in God is like an iPhone not believing in cell towers. I'm sorry, You turn it on, and it believes in cell towers because it's looking for them all the time. You're made in God's image. You cannot deny the reality of God, even though you want to, which is a problem we all face. So, the, the light of nature and works of creation reveal God to leave you unexcusable. No plausible deniability left open to you. Yet, they're not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. If you want to be saved, you need the Bible. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners, Hebrews 1, to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. But notice that the the Bible is a church-centered, a church-focused document. It's your book given to you by God. Do you treat it that way? Too often, you know, Christians treat the Bible like junk mail, Technically, it's got their name on it, but it's not really meant for them. You know, dear Neil, we're glad to announce to you, you've won a thousand dollars. Trash can. You know, I know it's not true. It's junk mail. It's not really meant for me. But the Bible is meant for you, Christians, written by God Himself with you in mind. It's your book. And we should read it and treasure it. And if you're not reading the Bible every day, it's like, you know, whenever you call somebody, and I sometimes call some of you and you never answer my phone, I forgive you. But you call somebody and you have that, you know, caller ID and you go, oh, not speaking to them, or spam, not speaking to them, boom, the, the red button. Um, it's like when God calls you, when the Bible is sitting there and God's calling you on your desk, and it's like, your creator. And you go, oh, no. Is that how you treat God at the beginning of the day? Does that not strike you as at least a little bit disrespectful? That every morning your Bible is going, bzz, 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 and your creator's got a word for you, and you go, cancel. Um, this is God's book for you. And John Piper was given his first Bible by his grandmother, I think it was. She wrote in the flyleaf of it, um, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Which of those dynamics is happening in your life this morning? So, a Christian is somebody addressed by Scripture to all the saints. A Christian is also somebody who is defined by his or her relationship to Jesus Christ, 
to all the saints in Christo Jesu, in Christ Jesus. Um, in Christ Jesus. What, what are you this morning? You might say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, the Bible actually only speaks of, uses the word Christian, I think, three times. And each time it's kind of a little, it's a pejorative term. It'd be like being called a Jesus freak. Somebody calls you a Jesus freak, that's accurate, but they're not being kind to you, right? Now, when, when you get to heaven and the day of judgment, you'll want to be a Jesus freak, but being a Jesus freak now is kind of a little bit weird, right, in the eyes of many. And that's kind of what the term Christian was like. Um, Paul says, or Peter says, if anyone suffers, let him suffer as a Christian. A Christian is somebody who suffers. Agrippa says in, in his famous chat with Paul, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian, but not quite. In other words, becoming a Christian was not something on Agrippa's bucket list. No. But he almost, I mean, you're clearly crazy, Paul, and you almost convinced me to be crazy also, but not quite. Um, it's that kind of idea, right? It's a Christian. But a much better description of a Christian occurs all over the Bible, scores of times, especially in Paul's writings, and it's a Christian is a man or woman who's in Christo, who's in Christ. We're baptized into the name of Jesus. We believe into the name of Jesus. That's even a strange phrase. phrase. Nobody in the Roman culture, nobody in the Greek culture believed into something. They believed someone or they believed something, but nobody ever said they believed into something. But the apostles did, especially Paul. You believe into Christ Jesus. Why? Well, because that's what happens when you become a Christian. You believe into Him. There's a union that forms that's always been there, actually, because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. But that union becomes effective and personal. The moment God calls you to be born again and draws you by faith to connect to Jesus, and what happens at that moment is a little bit like on your car, not my car right now, but soon, when you wash your car and polish it, and when it rains, the bubbles form on the car, right? And because of all the surface tension, you've got a bubble. And then when you dry, there's two bubbles side by side, and maybe bubble on the left and bubble on the right meet one another, and they touch. And the moment their membranes touch, they become one bubble. And you can no longer tell the one from the other. They become indistinguishable. And that is exactly what happened to a Christian when he believes in Jesus. His, his soul reaches out to Christ by faith. And the moment his faith touches Jesus, momentary faith, no matter how weak the faith is, if it's true faith touching Jesus, the moment it touches, faith as thin as a spider's web touches Jesus, the two become one. And they become spiritually indistinguishable from one another. Everything that belongs to us suddenly belongs to Jesus. All of our sin becomes His. Just like any bacteria in one bubble touching the other bubble of clean spring water, as soon as the bubbles touch, all the filth in that one bubble flow into, into the, the new bubble, and there's a sharing going on. And that's how the gospel works. That's how God can take my sin and make it Christ. I used to always wonder that. When I, I was talking to a dear lady last night who's from England, and 
she can't find a good church in England because there are very, very few, and she was lamenting that fact. And she said, I used to go to a happy, clappy church. I haven't heard that word for a long time, but it sums it up perfectly, a happy, clappy church. Lots of clapping goes on, and I used to go to one too a long time ago. Lots of clapping, but not much thinking. And I didn't, when they preached the gospel, they, they did say Christ died for your sins, but didn't, how can, how, can that be, how can God punish Jesus for my sins and that be okay? And it didn't make sense to me at all. Like, oh. and, but when I went to the Reformed Church and I heard Derek Thomas preach, and he, he was talking always about union with Christ, suddenly it became clear. I was like, ah, I see now. The two become one, and the bank accounts. That's when it first became clear. It became even more clear recently when I co-signed on my son's student loan. And what I was saying was, if he doesn't pay, I have to, which is a scary prospect, because the loan is mine by union, legal union. And that's what Christ did. So everything that Christ did on earth, He did in union with us, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. So when you go to heaven, for example, if you were to ask you get to the door of heaven, and Peter says, why should… What, you're a sinner? Yes. As a sinner, do you believe you deserve to go to hell? Yes. Is God just? Yes. Why shouldn't God send you to hell? The best answer you could give is this. I shouldn't go to hell because I've already been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. I've already been to hell. How long for? Forever. When? When Christ on the cross went to hell… I was there with him. Isn't that what Paul said? I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Christ died, I died with him. I see those tanks littering the battlefield in Ukraine, and think of those poor soldiers I mean, dying in a tank. I, can't, I can hardly think of a worse way to die, being roasted to death in a blazing conflagration. When Christ died on the cross, you were inside him, being roasted in the fires of hell, legally, mystically, but truly, covenantally, you were in him as he went to hell on the cross. You've already been there. So God says, why should, God, why should I send you to heaven? What would you say? The best answer is, because I'm already there. What do you mean? Well, Christ is in heaven, and I'm part of Christ. The best part of me is already in heaven. Like children floating in the swimming pool, their heads are above the water, their toesies are beneath the water, right? And their, everything else is below their center of gravity. But you know, their heads are above the water and their bodies are beneath the water. And Christ is our head in heaven, and we're on earth beneath the water in this present space, time continuum. But we are connected to Jesus. Isn't that what Paul said in Ephesians 2? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him, not in the future, but now. We are raised with Him now and seated with Him now in the heavenly places. So God can no longer not send you to heaven than He could send Christ out of heaven. And so think about that, Christian. What's the Christian? You are in Christ. The bubbles have coalesced. And God, like Gregory of Nazianzus once said, I can't think of the one, the Trinity, without thinking of the three. And I can't think of the three without thinking of the one God, right? It's a beautiful phrase. Well, God can't look on 
Jesus without thinking of you. And he can't think of you without thinking of Jesus. And you are safe. How safe? As safe as Jesus is safe. Could God send Christ to hell? No, not again. For the same reason, God can't send you to hell. Everything that is, is Christ is yours. Now, that's something we, that is true, and we abide in more and more and more. We dwell in Him as we read Scripture, as we pray, as we come to worship and experience the sacraments. We, 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 we're delving deeper and deeper and deeper into our union with Christ. Just like a marriage. Witnessed um, Clark and Connie last night marrying, and they're just beginning to be one. And that union will grow deeper and deeper and deeper through their whole lives as God, as God spares them. And that's what a Christian is. He's defined by his relationship to Jesus Christ. Moving on, he's also different from the world. He's a saint. We're saints in Christ. We're saints in Christ. It's because we're in Christ that we are saints. Now, right. A saint, what's a saint? Well, in Roman Catholic theology, a saint is a special kind of Christian who is good enough to get to heaven either graduating from purgatory or going straight from earth to heaven. The official catechism of the, of the, catechism of the Catholic Church says this, all who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Right? In simple terms, what that is saying is Christ is not enough. Now, you can be a Catholic and go to heaven despite what the church teaches, their church teaches, not because of it. If you believe what the Catholic church teaches, you cannot be saved because it's a blasphemous gospel that's no gospel at all. Christ is not enough to perfectly purify you. He does a lot, an awful lot, but there's a gap between the purification Christ gives and the purification you need. And you've got to go to purgatory, which is like hell light. It's only light because it's not eternal. It might go on for a thousand years or ten thousand years. We don't know, but it's a long time, they say. And you, you, get, you get through purgatory by praying for the saints and, and, and you're there and giving money to the church. It's a great fundraising tool. But imperfectly purified, Christ is not enough. Now, if Christ is not enough to perfectly purify you, how in God's name can sufferings you endure in purgatory somehow make up the difference? Which is why, as Cardinal Bellarmine has said, he was one of the great actors or the bad actors at the Council of Trent, that the greatest of all Catholic her Protestant heresies is assurance of salvation. 
You can be very clear in this. The Catholic Church has no gospel. Their gospel explicitly is Christ is not enough. But when, you, when you've done enough somehow adding to what Christ has done, and you do more in purgatory or on earth, and you become a saint, you get to go to heaven. And people know you're in heaven because they pray to you, and then you pray to Jesus, and you get miracles, and they go, you must be in heaven because we're praying, and we're getting people healed. And when, when that happens enough, and the Pope is sure you get canonized, you become a saint. You need to realize Paul believes every single member of the church in Philippi is a saint, and not just the believing members, even the children. How do we know that? Well, if you turn in 1 Corinthians 7 quickly, you'll see Paul calls that. Now, what does saint mean as you're turning there? A saint literally means someone who is set apart and different. So, the world are pagan Gentiles in the darkness, but the church are saints. They're set apart. They're different. And listen to what Paul says. And there is no way to understand this language unless it is, unless you go to covenantal theology. One of my best friends in, uh, in the church, he was in my first church I pastored, and he was a Reformed Baptist um, elder, and their church collapsed, and they all came into our church, and they were wonderful members, some of our best members. Their pastor played the piano, and this guy was one of the elders, a really scholar. He said, this verse is the hardest verse for me to understand, and be a Baptist still. I said, become a Presbyterian, you'll have no trouble then. But, um, and Paul's explaining why a man, a man or woman gets saved, but their spouse is unsaved, and why they shouldn't divorce. And Paul says this, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And the word holy is the verb of the term saint. The unbelieving husband is, is sanctified because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified because of her husband. While they're still unbelieving. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are saints. Same word, hagia. It's the adjective of the noun. They are saints. Your children are saints. That doesn't mean they're saved. The wife's unbelieving, but she's sanctified. And the children, still maybe unbelieving, but they're sanctified. They're part of the church. They're not outside the church. They're part of the, the body of the church. A Christian is defined by his relationship to the church. He's part of the saints. And notice it's saints plural. These are the gathered saints, the church with the overseers and deacons, the, the leaders of the church, elders, overseers, another word for elder, and the deacons. And they are together, and it's as the church, we're communal beings, and a Christian is, is defined by his relationship to Jesus, but he's also distinct from the world. He's called out from the world, which is what the term ecclesia means. Ek, out of, klesia, called, called out from the world, and some would add also called together as a church. The whole New Testament is written to members of the church. It commands you to love one another. Who are the one another? To submit to your elders. Who are the elders? If you aren't a member of the church, to which elders do you submit? How do you obey that command? There's whole scads of the New Testament you can't make sense of or obey if you aren't a member of the church. 
We're different. We're in a new category called by God. We see things differently. We think differently. We feel differently. We love differently. And we make different choices because of Christ. So, what is a Christian? He's a man or woman addressed by God through Scripture. He's a man or woman defined by their relationship to Jesus. And he's a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is distinct from the world, right? And lastly, a Christian is somebody who is dependent upon grace, the gospel. Dependent upon the gospel, sorry. We see that quickly there in those last two words. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the root of the gospel, and peace is the fruit of the gospel. Grace is that God is determined to give people who do deserve His wrath His love. And that's not because God has gone soft on sin. It's because Christ has come and dealt with our sins fully, finally, and forever. Um. And notice grace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't that Jesus persuaded God to be gracious. No, Jesus was sent because God is gracious. Because God was so determined to love you, He had to find a way to justly stop hating you legally, stop punishing you. You just couldn't ignore your sin. You couldn't pretend it didn't happen. God is responsible to speak decisively against sin. When a judge doesn't do that, it's a dereliction of duty. That guy in New York was it to let the man who punched the 74-year-old woman in the face almost killed her. And he did it unprovoked, just punched her in the face because he just did. And he was a sex offender, and he goes to, to, um, he goes to um, the judge, and the judge reduces the crime from attempted murder to aggravated assault, and lets him go and bail. And we go, have you lost your mind? That's not a good, that's a bad judge, and God has got to deal decisively with sin. You just can't pretend your selfishness and my selfishness doesn't matter. It does matter. It's got to be dealt with. And in Christ, it was dealt with fully and finally forever. Grace. And peace. Peace is the fruit of the gospel. What's wrong with the world? Why do men treat men the way they do? Why do Russian soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers do such terrible atrocities on the battlefield? Why do men treat women the way they do? Why did that man in Memphis take that Christian woman from Independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis and murder her that night when she's out jogging early in the morning. Why do you do that? Why do men and women abuse their children so terribly? Why do you and I speak such terribly evil things to one another, and we mean to hurt one another when we do? Why do we do that? And the reason is because we're at war with God by nature. And if we're at war with God, then nobody is safe the world is at war with God, and we see the litter of it all over the place. 
just like Ukraine is a war-torn country, the world is a war-torn spiritual environment where the detritus of bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, and rage are everywhere to see. Men are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. They're whisperers and backbiters and haters of God and violent, proud boosters, inventors of evil things. And the list goes on and on and on. And it's everywhere to see in our culture. Men are untrustworthy, unforgiving, unmerciful, unwise, foolish, disobedient, enslaved to various pleasures, and so forth and so on. And it's everywhere to be seen, man's war against God, but the gospel has found a way for God to be gracious and God to make peace. So God is no longer at war with you. And notice those two words define God's relationship with you. God doesn't, God doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, grace and peace. And then also a little bit of judgment and wrath whenever you're a complete jerk and you mess it up. No, the only words God has for you because of Christ are grace and peace. That's it. Those are the left hand and the right hand by which God embraces His children, grace and peace. He sees you. He only sees Jesus. And that knowledge makes us want it. It doesn't make us want to live it. I go, oh, great, we've got daddy's credit card. Let's go and sin all the more. It makes us want to spend our life serving our Father. And it's like this week, if, I can, if you forgive me bragging on my son, he, he, was, he, he got onto the lacrosse team at, at, at Grove City, and it was a real just mercy of God. God opened the, the um, door for that. But he was there. He was one of the walk-ons. Right? He was the only walk-on, but he was the walk-on on the team, and they were in the meeting. And the coach was looking and talking, and they were all talking about one another. And they asked Ben, Ben, what, those gloves you've got, are they the color from your school? And they were blue and white, so they weren't. And he said, no, no, I got them on Facebook Marketplace. And the coach reached in and grabbed a pair of gloves with the Grove City um, colors and said, son, you're going to need these then to play with us this year. And Ben caught them, and just, just, just wonderful joy as he, as he received the news. But he said to me, he said, the coach is, is a really earnest Christian. He has this way, Dad, he said, that, that even when he's hard on you, he said, you just want to please him. You, 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 don't, you, you want to do your best for him. He has this wonderful way, as all coaches do, of communicating to the team, I'm on your side, and I love you boys. I want what's best for you. And, he, and all the boys just pour out their hearts for him in practice. And that's a bit like what it's like with God. He's, he's so good and so kind. We never want to sin. That's after all we have done, and He should come with us with the arm of wrath and cursing. And instead, He comes with the arms of grace and peace. And that's, that's life-transforming. Isn't it? That's God's entire posture. Sum up all that God has to say to you, even when He's disciplining you. Sometimes He must. It's grace and peace. And that'll change the way you do life. It'll change the way you um, do marriage. It'll change the way you relate to your children.
before that gets a hold of us, our attitude is instinctively more. You've got to do more. Not enough. More. You've got to earn it. And some of the problems in some of your marriages, that's the way you do marriage. I respect you, husband. You've got to do it, though. You've got to earn it. And husbands are, I love you, but you've got to earn it. But whenever we come to God and God is saying grace and peace because Christ has earned it, it sets us free from such petty, nitpicking mindset, and we become much more open-handed in our generosity. And we respect our husbands, not because they earn it, but because Christ has earned it, and we respect them because we have promised it. And we love our wives, not because they've earned it, but because we've promised it, and Christ has earned it for them. And by the logic of the cross, we can forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven freely, finally, and forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for its power and its truth. And we ask You, Lord Jesus, to speak to our hearts and help us to live in light of the root of the gospel, Your grace, and the fruit of the gospel, Your peace, that we would live lives of peacemaking and so show ourselves to be the sons and daughters of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.